Well, good morning, my sweetheart church. Welcome to Super Bowl Sunday. Let's get this out of the way. How many are 49ers fans? How many are Chiefs fans? How many are Swifties? <laughs> How many couldn't care less? <laughs> well, what makes this super is not a football game. We are here worshiping a great, awesome super God. That's what makes this day super and every, every day. So welcome to worship here at Chapel Hill. You know, we have a mission. Every church has a mission. Ours is to uh, exalt Jesus, elevate others, and launch disciple makers. You probably know that because we say it nearly every week in some way. What you may not remember or may not be as familiar with is we also have something we call our DNA. How many remember us talking about DNA? The DNA, those are nine markers that distinguish us, nine of our nine values that we consider essential to who we are. That if one of those was not there or was tweaked in some way, it would violate something we are at our core. I recently preached, we recently preached a series on our DNA. Uh, we talked about it in terms of our head, what we believe, our hearts, what we, how we behave, and our hands, what we do. If you're interested in finding out more about that, and especially if you are new to our church, you really ought to know something about our DNA because it is who we are, then you can go online. There's a link that'll take you to those um, sermons, the, those DNA sermons. This morning, I want to return to our DNA heart markers. Here they are. These are the things we, that, how we behave. We embrace humility. We embrace accountability. We embrace courage. Would you say those three with me, please? We embrace humility. We embrace accountability. We embrace courage. We didn't say we are humble. We are accountable. We are because we always got room for growth, right? But these are the things, the qualities that we embrace. And we're returning to revisit these qualities today because actually Jesus is teaching about all three of these things. On the heels of the, the Last Supper and these little sermonettes that we look at, Jesus is teaching about all three of these qualities, humility, accountability, and courage. So let's continue on. As we draw near the end of our journey through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be kind of sad to say goodbye to this dear friend, uh, Luke, although we won't quite say goodbye because we're going to pick it up with Acts, which he wrote too. So in a few weeks, that's where we go. But let's continue in our journey as we turn to Luke chapter 22. Days ago, I heard uh, from a, a pastor who's a dear friend of mine. He's a young guy. Um, he's fighting colon cancer. And uh, he shared with me an email that he had sent to his congregation in which he told them that he was back in the hospital uh, following the surgery that he had. He was back in the hospital and that the meds that they were hoping would be most effective, that his body was basically rejecting those meds. And so the very best that the doctors had hoped for is not possible. And frankly, he is at a point where they don't know what to do next. Some of you have gone through something like that. I love this guy. And so my heart is, is heavy with what is some really, really bad news. Last week, Pastor Zach shared a, an account where Jesus shares some really bad news with his disciples. During their Passover meal, Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. It's going to be crushed, broken for you. He said, this, is, this, is the blood, my, this cup is my, my blood that I'm going to pour out for you. Any way you cut it, that's... 
that sounds kind of ominous. If you said something like that around a, a Thanksgiving feast, everyone would, you would get everyone's attention, wouldn't you? And then comes the disturbing revelation that one of them, one of his closest friends, one of the, the 12 who have walked with him for three years is, is going to betray him. I can't imagine much worse news than that. Scary words about his impending death, this horrific announcement that one of them is a traitor. How would you process news like that? How, how would you deal with receiving news? Maybe you'd just go silent. You wouldn't know what to say. Maybe you'd try to offer some words of comfort. How, what would you do? How would you respond? Well, I hope you'd respond better than these guys because you are about to listen to what may be the most insensitive response to bad news that you'll find in the whole Bible. Just remember the context. Jesus has just said, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood. I'm going to pour it out for you. One of you is going to betray me. He has laid his heart on the table in vulnerability before them. And I want you to listen to the very next verse. Here it is. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Isn't that horrific? Let me read it again. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Jesus says, guys, I've got some bad news for you, hard news. He said, I'm going to die a violent death in a few days, and one of you is going to betray me to my enemies. And then a dispute also arose among them as to which of them might be the greatest. We're going to read more in just a moment, but I have to pause to underscore this. What idiots these guys are right here. They are insensitive and selfish and self-absorbed. Aren't we agreed? Let me read it one more time. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Let's repeat those last words together. But not so with you. This is the word of the Lord. If you travel in the Middle East, uh, many of you will be joining me in next March, as a matter of fact, back to the Holy Land. Everywhere you go in the place that used to be a part of the Roman Empire, you will find massive monuments that are built to honor powerful, influential men. And all of them have inscriptions in Greek writing that describes how awesome they were. That's what these monuments are all about. How wise and compassionate and benevolent and powerful these men were. Everywhere the Romans went, they left behind these little love gifts, these permanent tributes to their own wonderfulness. And, and for those who had been invaded, like the Jews had been, who were now living under occupation, these monuments were like huge billboards rubbing their noses in it. We wonderful people have conquered your measly nation, and it's for your own good. And one of the most popular words on those, those announcements, those monuments, was the word benefactor. And you just heard that word because Jesus uses precisely the same word. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. 
And we hardly notice the word when we read it. We probably just jump right over it. It seems rather benign, benefactor, someone who's doing good for someone else. But that word would have jumped out at the Jews because every monument practically included that word on it, benefactor. It was a familiar, mocking propaganda word. It was a condescending look-down-your-nose word flaunted by those in power and wealth and authority over their occupied little people. This is what greatness looked like in the Roman world. Authoritarianism with a patina of benevolence. So when these unbelievably insensitive disciples are arguing about who will be the greatest among them, this is the kind of power they were jockeying for. And Jesus' reply was as curt as it was clear. Not so with you. The literal Greek is, you not like that. You not like that. Those powerful people who long to be recognized as powerful people who wield their power uh, ruthlessly. You not like that. Okay, if we not like that, then how are we? How should we be? Jesus goes on. Rather, he says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Say those words. But I am among you as one who serves. This is a picture of my granddaughter, Cece. She is sitting in the fire truck that visited our preschool uh, last week, and she looked quite comfortable in the driver's seat. I think you'd agree. A confidence that apparently exhibits itself in her classroom as well. According to her teacher, Sydney, Cece is quite comfortable wielding authority. <laughs> I wonder where she got that. Probably her Nana, Nana Cindy over here. When the time comes, apparently, she will wag her finger at the children and say, time to clean up. Time to clean up. And Sydney, her teacher, will say gently, yes, it is, Cece, but why don't we help with the cleaning up? <laughs> and she does. She pitches in. But that is servant leadership. Servant leadership is a popular concept today. Well, if if you've heard of it, it started with Jesus. It was his idea. It was what he taught. It was the way he lived. Jesus said, if you want to be great, if you want to be considered big shots in my kingdom, here's the secret sauce. Make yourself small. Lower yourself. Serve others. This is our very first DNA heart marker here at Chapel Hill. We embrace humility. We are a big church. We are not big shots. God has blessed us with size and influence and resources, but he does not intend that we would throw our weight around. Rather, he intends that we would wait on others, that we would serve others as Jesus did. But the fact is that nothing has changed in this world. If anything, it's gotten worse. We still view authority and influence through a power lens. We assess our authority by the number of people who are below us who dance to our tune. But Jesus flips all of this on its head when he says, let me make this easy for you. Treat everyone as if they were above you. You want to be great in my kingdom? Make yourself small, just like I did. We talk about 
upward mobility in our culture, in our careers, upward mobility. Well, what he describes here is, as one Catholic priest described it, downward mobility. Jesus was the definition of downward mobility, and it's captured in Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus sacrificed everything he had. He was in heaven, the second person of the Trinity. He had all of the perks of being among the Godhead. And Jesus left all of that. He, he, he emptied himself, Paul says in Philippians, and humbled himself to the point of becoming a human being and ultimately dying on the cross. That is downward mobility. I cannot tell you how essential I consider this to be for all of us, but especially for those who are called to spiritual leadership, to pastoral leadership. And I know that our senior pastor search committee agrees. Their job description for the ideal candidate for this job is one who embraces humility and accountability as essential leadership virtues. I don't care how talented someone is, if they are not vigilant against the temptation toward pride, they will not be the leader that Chapel Hill or any other church needs and deserves. But we all struggle with pride, don't we? Every one of us, we struggle with pride. The other day I found myself on the outside of a conversation and I realized that being on the outside of that conversation tweaked my pride. I felt honestly a little dishonored. But then as I was thinking about it, I told myself, this is the nature of retirement. <laughs> you are dishonoring yourself. You are pulling yourself out of a, of a place of influence and honor and authority to make room for the next person that God intends to be there. This is good for you. You might as well get used to it. It's easy for us to get disgusted with the disciples, and I surely do. I, I surely am. Who, because they were vying for significance and power. But the truth is, every one of us vies for significance and power. We all want more authority. We all long for greatness, how, whatever that, whether we use that word or not. But the call of Jesus, the example of Jesus, is as countercultural as anything that we might imagine today. Embrace humility. Choose servanthood. Choose to make yourself small and make others great. That is the measure of the real greatness in the kingdom of God. And so we embrace humility. That's DNA marker number one. Here's number two. We embrace accountability. Say that with me. Embrace accountability. Jesus goes on to say something, honestly, I'd never thought very much about. I'd read it a bunch of times, but I'd never reflected on it like I did this week. Listen to what he says to the disciples, says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me. You hear that delegation? I'm assigning to you just as my Father assigned to me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. To those knuckleheads, who only moments earlier were arguing about who would succeed Jesus when he was gone, and who hours from now will abandon Jesus out of fear, to them he says, look, you guys have stuck with me for the most part, and because of that, I'm going to give you authority in my kingdom. 
you are going to join me in judging the, the people of God in the final days. I had never really thought about this. We know that Jesus is going to be the judge in final days, but now we discover that he who was assigned that role by his father is accountable to his father. He is delegating that assignment also to his disciples. Then together, somehow, they're going to share in accountability for the governance of the new kingdom of God. It kind of blows my mind. I'm not sure exactly what that means in all honesty. What does that look like that those guys have been assigned, but I'm not sure, but I, don't, I think it means at least this. Jesus is choosing to share his authority with his followers, and he is calling us all to a relationship of mutual accountability. Mutual accountability. It's one of the reasons that we do church membership. It's one of the reasons we value church membership. There are some churches that don't do membership, and there are some people who don't join churches for all kinds of reasons. Some of them are really painful reasons, to be honestly honest. But for us here at Chapel Hill, it is a way for us to declare our mutual accountability, to say that we are accountable to one another because of our covenant, this covenant we make, we walk in relationship together. And when one of us breaks that covenant, we have the grounds because of that covenant to approach them and say, what are you doing? It's not right. It's not healthy. It's not good for you. And it doesn't honor the Lord. It doesn't honor this community. Accountability. We need to be more accountable one to another. We tend to want to chatter about people behind their backs. We love to notice and call out their stuff. But having the courage to act, actually to go to someone and say, listen, what you're doing is not healthy. It's not good. Let's talk about this. We don't like to do it. And yet we are called to do that, I think. I wonder if you noticed that that also is mentioned in that portion of the senior pastor's job description that I read earlier. He or she embraces humility and accountability as essential leadership virtues. I don't care what standards you might outline for someone in a leadership role. If that person is unaccountable, if they're unwilling to submit to authority, if they are a maverick, sooner or later they're going to go off the rails and they're going to take a whole bunch of people with them. I've been senior pastor here a long time. And honestly, I usually get what I want. It's just the truth of it. But I am accountable to our elders. And there are times when your session, your elders have said no to me. I remember one of those times, it was many years ago, but it's very vivid in my memory because I was so angry, I literally left town for a few days because I was considering submitting my resignation. Obviously, when I returned, I'd kind of cooled down, and what I said was, aye, aye. Aye, aye. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. And we moved on. That's what it means to be accountable. And by the way, upon reflection, I think the elders were right. In a few months, you're going to be presented a candidate to fill my role. And our search committee has got great people. They are prayerful. They're diligent. They're godly. And I know that they're going to seek to select someone they believe will carry on our mission and embrace our DNA. But here's the good news. We are Presbyterians. That senior pastor will be accountable to the session, a session that knows and understands and values who we are as a church. There will be a relationship, as there always has been, of mutual accountability. And that should be a source of great comfort and reassurance, especially in a time of exciting change. 
So we embrace humility. We embrace accountability. And finally, we embrace courage. And here we turn to one of the most controversial of all of Jesus' teachings. Luke chapter 22, verse 35. Listen to what he tells his disciples. Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Earlier in Luke's gospel, way back when, you might recall that Jesus sent his disciples out on a mission. He sent them out to preach and to teach and to heal the sick and to, uh, and to cast out evil spirits. Jesus is referring to that earlier mission when he says, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, no, nothing. Part of their training at that time, perhaps early on in their relationship with Jesus, was to learn what it means to really rely on the Lord to take care of everything they needed. But apparently, now they need to learn a different lesson. Because Jesus continues, but now, that's the way we did back then, now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. Jesus seems to be saying that this next season of ministry is going to be hard. And you better be well prepared, well equipped. You're going to need money. I wonder if Judas ran off with all the money when he betrayed him. You're going to need a knapsack that is full of supplies. Sometimes, beloved, we are called to live by faith. We don't know where the next dollar is coming from, and we've got to learn how to, what it means to live by faith. Sometimes we live by being well prepared, by being good stewards of what God has given us. And Jesus seems to be saying, this moment is the latter. You need to be prepared for what you're going into. You need to be equipped. But here comes the most shocking comment, I think. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Does that surprise you coming from the lips of Jesus? The cloak was the, one of the most important garments you have. It's what you wrapped yourself up at night. So to sell your cloak in order to buy a sword, that was a big sacrifice. And this is a puzzler. Some com com And by the way, it, it was a puzzler early on. The earliest church fathers rarely commented on this verse. It's like they didn't know what to do with it. Some commentators will say that the sword here cannot be taken literally. Because after all, Jesus is a pacifist, right? If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn and offer your other cheek as well. That's what Jesus said. And in a few paragraphs, when the disciples draw their swords, apparently two of them, they only had two, he draw their swords to defend Jesus in Gethsemane, doesn't he tell them, put the sword away? He that lives by the sword will die by the sword. So these folks would say, How, then you cannot take his comment about sword literally. There's another group. They will reply that the slapping of the face was an insult. It wasn't attack. And so what Jesus was saying is, don't return insult for insult. They will say that Jesus didn't allow his disciples to prevent his arrest in Gethsemane because that was the reason he came in the first place. He needed to be arrested, tried, killed, and raised to life in order to do what he had come for. 
They would argue that when it says money bag and knapsack, we take that literally. Why not the very next phrase as well, the sword? And they will argue that Jesus here is encouraging self-defense. He's encouraging them to be ready to protect themselves against marauders as they set out on a dangerous mission. And they would further argue, can you imagine Jesus would not intervene violently? He who tipped over the money changers in defense of his father's honor, remember? He made a rope uh, into a whip and chased people out. He who intervened violently for for the sake of his father, would he not also intervene if he saw a child being harmed? Would he not also intervene violently if he saw a woman who was being raped? Did not Jesus teach parables that spoke about defending one's house against a a burglar which suggests a man's responsibility to protect his family? So it's kind of confusing. Is Jesus a pacifist? Is he encouraging self-defense? I'll tip my hand. I lean toward number two. I think Jesus was warning them that they were heading off into a dangerous world And that if they were not prepared to defend themselves, to protect themselves, they were not going to be able to complete the mission that he had called them on. I think Jesus is calling them to be courageous. I think he's affirming their right to self-defense and the wisdom of being prepared for such a moment. And I could be wrong, (laughs) because there are many who disagree with me on that. But here, regardless, I think is the key point that Jesus is seeming to make. He says, I'm about to suffer and die, and I'm going to do this for the sake of my mission. If you are truly my disciples, you had better be prepared to do the same. You are going to need courage if you're going to fulfill my mission, because my missionaries cannot be sissies, because where you're going is nasty. It is nasty out there. And beloved, it is still nasty out there. It is still nasty out there. In some ways, nastier, perhaps. Christianity used to be viewed as a positive influence in our culture. Now it is increasingly viewed as malevolent to be crushed or silenced. If you are not prepared, if you are not prepared, if you are not tough, if you're not ready to defend yourselves against the attacks that might come, you may well fail in the mission that we've been called to, to, to lead into this nasty and broken world. The Christian mission is not for sissies. We must embrace courage. So we are in an exciting time of transition. The key for us moving forward as a church is to remember who we are and what we are and the mission to which we have been called. And part of our DNA includes these three qualities of humility and accountability and courage. And I think today's message from Jesus reinforces all three of these values for our church and, God willing, for the next person that he is calling to lead this great church. So let's pray about that. Father, we thank you for your call upon our lives, and we thank you for the example that we find in Jesus, who leads in a different way, who influences in a different way, who leads with humility, who leads a life of accountability, and who stepped courageously into all that wanted to harm him, and, and defeat him. Lord, I, I pray for this church. I pray for every member here. As we listen to this, we know the parts that perhaps we are falling back on. We know that we are struggling with pride. We know that we struggle with being unteachable or, or arrogant or a maverick. We know that we are not very brave when it comes to speaking your 
gospel into the lives of those around us. And so, Jesus, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would, you would cause to well up within us a, a greater longing and willingness and ability to live lives that are humble, accountable, and courageous. And as we do that, may our world become more and more like the kingdom of God that you have called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.
my sweet wife Cindy was just saying, you know, one of our swords is our security team. You may not even think about that, but we got men and women every Sunday who are watching over us, the sheepdog watching over the sheep to make sure that we are safe. And uh, if you see one of them, they kind of hide. They hide in the corners and lurking around and looking, but, but they're there. And we, why don't you say thank you to these people who are, who are here to take care of us, protect us. You know, the phrase DNA, uh, think about the origin of that. It's genetic. It's in our blood. It's not like we're going to try harder to be more accountable or more courageous. I mean, it's the stuff that should be in our blood because the blood of Christ courses through us. We are his brothers, his sister, children of our Heavenly Father. So when we talk about these qualities, it's not like we're trying to gin up something that isn't there. We're trying to call forth that which is already there because it's been de demonstrated perfectly in Jesus. Jesus who left heaven, who emptied himself and came to earth to become one of us and die on a cross. Jesus who once told his disciples, I say nothing except what my father tells me to say, ultimate, ultimate accountability. And Jesus who set his face towards Jerusalem like a flint and walked to the cross that terrified him because that was what was called for. So all we're asking is that Jesus would stir in us that which already exists because the blood of the Savior courses through the veins of every one of his children. So that means we need more of the Holy Spirit to help us with that. Following this service, if there are needs that you have to pray for, we have a team that would be over there. Carol would love to meet you, especially if you're new in the wood wall. And in the meantime, we're going to close the way we do every Sunday, asking for the Holy Spirit to give us a little bit more. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all of God's people said, 